I got to start Googling neat little tricks. Huh? Yeah, I need to get me some of those. All right, well, the children are leaving to have their little time of study. We're going to open our Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we land today. We're going to look at the first 17 verses in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that we were in 2 Samuel upon that occasion as well, albeit we were in a different chapter. We were in 2 Samuel chapter 23 upon that occasion as we took an opportunity on that particular week to look upon what was called David's Elite Mighty Men. You may recall, if you were here, that we referred to that text in which there's a moment in which David, as the king, is requesting well, a drink of water, but a drink of water from a particular well that was in Bethlehem. And not just was the well in Bethlehem, but it's behind the enemy lines of the Philistines. As David requests that out loud, three of his men, three brave, courageous, devoted men to David, took the opportunity to risk their lives and go retrieve the water behind the enemy lines and bring that water to David. We took all together that text in 2 Samuel 23, that particular week, to note how they were wholly, completely devoted to their king, to David. And we made that parallel then the application for all of us that we too have a king. His name is Jesus, and we need to be wholly, completely, totally voted to King Jesus. That was then on 2 Samuel 23. Today we landed once more in 2 Samuel, albeit a different chapter is chapter 11. And we find then, as we continue to analyze certain segments of David's life, that he is going to cave into this great temptation that is in front of him. Now note that the story we're about to read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is probably nothing new to many of us. As we begin our reading, you're going to recognize that you're probably very familiar with this story. Because chapter 11 is a popular account of two people, yeah, David, but also one other person, it happens to be Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba have been recorded with many different sermons, books written, commentaries, so it's likely you've heard some stories or situations or some messages previously pertaining to David and Bathsheba. But the point of going here is the fact that today we recognize that every one of us are going to have a moment where we are tempted and we're going to fall to the temptation if we've ever succumbed to the enemy, the devil's plotting and scheming and deception, we find ourselves in a similar predicament as we find then with David. Notably, we recognize that we have to be considering these types of verses because the enemy is relentless, always looking for his next victim to devour, as proclaimed in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Why should we be looking at this text knowing that the enemy is always considering his next victim, which could be any one of us, because it can happen to us unexpectedly. It can happen to us suddenly, which is what happened to David. David, if you will, has what we call a rooftop experience. And as we think about his rooftop experience, that same thing can happen to each and every one of us. It can come suddenly, 
become unexpectedly. And as it comes, if we're not prepared, we can fall to the temptation similarly to that of David. So that begs the question as we receive this message this morning, are we prepared for this unexpected moment, the temptation, when it presents itself? We're going to find in the reading over this week and next that David was not prepared. He fell to one of the enemy's greatest tactics of deception. And he sinned greatly and horrendously. It kept getting worse and worse for David. So how can we be prepared for our rooftop experience when it happens to us alive? That's our message for today and as well for next week. So let us read the text again in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Stand with me today if you're able to as we stand to simply honor the reading of the word. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the first 17 verses. There's more to the story than just 17 verses. We won't even get close to covering 17 verses today, but here's what the text tells us in relation to David. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself of uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, the woman conceived, and, sent, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. But then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah, in verse 9, we find slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Well, then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Verse 13, And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent about a hand to Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. 
And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for the reading of your word. And we certainly ask, Lord, this morning that the blessing be placed upon it. We turn our attention, Lord, to David once more. We pray, Lord, as we look into David's life, that we can see the parallels that have begun to exist in our lives. Lord, we know we all fall short. We all know we sin, Lord. So we pray today that Lord, the message will lead and guide us into application of how we can be better people, how we cannot offend you with the sin we have. Lord, how we can be prepared for the devil and his tactics, his deception. So Lord, lead and guide and take this time this morning for us to better understand this text and then begin to apply it to our lives. So then we thank you for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you're being seated, it's worth noting that at this particular time in the account, David was probably about 50 years old, give or take, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. And then David, also as being the king of Israel, had been on the throne approximately 20 years. But also in that time frame, it's also worth noting that he had taken all his life so far in serving the Lord, he had distinguished himself as a man of God, as a faithful shepherd, a valiant warrior, and a leader of his people. That's David as we get into this account. So to understand that as we read this particular segment of David's life, that he was not some crazed adolescent going through some hormonal imbalance. David is mature. He's stable. He's strong. Which then makes this account, as we read about David and his actions, all the more remarkable and surprising. But yet he, David, despite his stability, despite his maturity, he falls into an intense period of sin that ultimately has devastating consequences for himself, for his family, his reign, and even the nation of Israel. That very fact demonstrates the underlying application theme for us today, which is this. The sin always has consequences. Every sin, no matter how huge or small, for everyone always has some type of consequence. That's the underlying theme of the text we have received today. Now, interestingly, as we look at David's situation and we begin in a moment to dissect it even further, there's no sin, perhaps outside that of Adam and Eve, that have received more press than the sin of David and Bathsheba. In fact, many people begin to suggest, would strongly state, that this account of David and Bathsheba is, is arguably the most offensive recorded sin in the Bible. And that might be a huge statement, but I can understand why that might be said. Because not only has he committed adultery, as we understand in the 17 verses we've read, we will also find ultimately that there's lying and cheating, cover-up, manipulation, and even murder. So understand how maybe they would say this is the most offensive sin recorded in the Bible. 
But then we must consider that David is truly a servant of God. In fact, throughout all the actions we find here of David, and even further we find of David past the point of the 17 verses read today, we're going to find that people still refer to David as a man after God's heart. They still think of David very highly, even with what we learn about him in this account. They think of him as a man after God's heart. That's what they call him. So, yeah, David sinned. But here's the thing that maybe we didn't recognize very early in the message time is that although his sin was, was, was great, his sin is no greater than yours or mine. Sin is sin. His sin really, by God's estimation, is no greater than yours or mine. Only for David, his sin has been recorded for all to read throughout history. Ours has not. And probably it's a good thing it has not. Because we have done some things that maybe we're not so proud of. You ever notice that we've done some things as we were younger that we don't let our children know? Now, why is that? It's probably because we're, number one, embarrassed a little bit about it. And secondly, because we do not want our children to know anything about what we've done. We don't even want our children to know that we used to be fun. Because they think as we get older, we're just a bunch of old, grungy people that don't have any fun anymore. But we keep that hidden. But David's sin was not hidden. No sin actually is hidden. God sees it all. And David happened to have it recorded. And ours has not. So we might find his a little more offensive, but all sin is offensive to God. But also, let me make this clear, because as we go through the message this week and next, I'm not going to try to in any way excuse David of his actions. We're going to dissect some things today. Some of it may be a little bit surprising, but I'm not going to in any way excuse David of his actions. I'm not going to try to justify what he did. I'm not going to try to defend him. But I'm also simply at the same time simultaneously recognizing that I'm not his judge. And I stand before you as a sinner. Is as Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he or she fall. And remember, all sin always has consequences. That's the underlying theme. So with that, let's return to the text and begin to analyze and for application and understanding. And first observe in verse 1. We go back to verse 1. Notice how the author is taking some little bit of extreme measures, if you will, to make sure he, under, he sets up the occasion of the sin, the temptation that we know will take place. There's so much information in the first two verses. It's so easy to jump right over it and get into David's sin and actions and consequences that sometimes we leave the first two verses and don't fully understand what the author is laying out there. So let's go into it a little slower and understand how he sets up the occasion. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now notice a couple of things here as we go back to verse 1 and start over. It is spring. All right? Which means then... The rainy season of the winter is over. 
In the Middle East, it gets really bad with rain during that time of the year, the winter. So now the spring is here is the most strategic time. The author puts it in there intentionally on purpose to let us know it's the most strategic time for battle. Why would now be the best time for battle? Well, because, again, the rainy season is over, which means spring, warmer season, warmer months, is allowing the roadways to continue to dry up, thereby making travel easier for the troops, all the movements they must make, for all the supplies that get to them, and for all the movements of the chariots. That is the case now where David's men, as they begin to battle the Ammonites, it tells us he's about to battle the Ammonites in verse 1. So the next question really for understanding is, who are the Ammonites? Well, the short answer of who the Ammonites is, is that they were a group of pagan people who worshipped the gods Milcom and Molech. God commanded the Israelites not to marry these pagans because their intermarriage would lead the Israelites to worship these false gods. That's the short answer. That's who the Ammonites are. People they should not mix with by the command of God, which are worshiping some gods of Molech and Milcom. But the longer answer for better understanding the text is this of who the Ammonites are. A longer answer takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 19, when God has had enough. In Genesis 19, you find that Lot has separated from Adam, I mean from, from Abraham, and in the separation he has from Adam, Abraham, his uncle, Lot goes to Sodom. Well, as Lot is in Sodom, wickedness and evil just seem to escalate beyond God's, he's just completely fed up with it. I mean, he don't want to see it, he don't want to tolerate it anymore. So in Genesis 19, God tells Abraham, he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if you know the account in Genesis 19, you know that Abraham is not too hip on the idea that God's going to destroy Sodom where his nephew Lot resides. So Abraham begins to negotiate with God. Remember, he says, if you can find 50 righteous people there, God, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, okay, 50 righteous people. But Abraham's not content with 50. You know, he bargains all the way down to 10. God, if you can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you not destroy it? God says, yes, if I can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I will not destroy the city. However, as you know, God does not find 10 righteous people in Sodom. So he goes and destroys the city, which thereby then sends Lot and his daughters fleeing to the hill country on the southern end of the Dead Sea. So everything's destroyed as far as Lot's daughters can see. Now's when the story gets really interesting and begins to pick up and get weird. Because Lot's daughters, thinking that everything in the world has been destroyed except for them, they decide they need to see, save civilization. They need to create some children because everything's gone. So what do they do? They get their father drunk and have incestuous relations with their dad. So that results in the older daughter having a son. He, she names him Moab. That's how the Moabites are formed. The younger daughter, same situation, she also has a son. She names him 
Ben-Ami. The descendants of Ben-Ami settled in a town called Ammon. So the descendants of the younger daughter and that relation she had incestuously with her father birthed the Ammonites. And that's who David and his men are in battle with. They are enemies of each other. They despise each other. You find in verse 1, I mean, they, they go out to battle with the Ammonites. So notice also then verse 1 tells us, as we now understand who the Ammonites are, why they're in the springtime, why they're in battle, why all this is occurring, it actually tells us now that it is not David that goes out to war and to battle. It is Joab. We're thinking, who is Joab? Well, Joab is David's nephew and the commander of his army. So then David sends Joab, his commander, his nephew with the men, to go out to battle these despised Ammonites. But where is David? David is at home. David is at home. Not at war. Not a battle. Which leads to his observation of a woman bathing as he takes a stroll along the rooftop. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw the, the, from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, we are only going to get to cover two verses. I know there's a lot to cover in two verses. You're thinking, how can you possibly have a message with two verses? But that's where we get today. There's so much information, we have to slow down and make sure we get it all because there is application in just the first two verses. So a couple of things to point out then as we take this time out and recognize we're not getting very far in the text. The first thing is this. Note how the author states here that David arose from his couch and began walking about. Now remember, we've already stated, and we can't really forget, it's a spring morning, spring day, spring afternoon. I mean, the winter months are over. The rainy season is gone. It's raining outside right now. We're still in the midst of it. But the sun is shining for David. It's a clear, sunny, beautiful day. It's a nice, warm, sunny day. So maybe David hears some splashing. Or maybe not. But regardless, he gets some in his couch. Now, notably, if you have other translations you prefer, you're going to find the other translations besides the ESV. It says couch. All the others say bed. So David gets up from bed, couch, probably after he'd been taking some afternoon nap, resting, whatever, and decides to take a leisurely walk along the rooftop. Now, we stop there for a minute because you're like me. You're thinking, well, how in the world can David be walking on a rooftop? Because I go to my house. I can't walk on my rooftop. I mean, the pitch is just way too much. I can't get up there. I lose my balance. I might roll off. I might get hurt. So I'm thinking, how can David be walking on his rooftop? Well, the homes in that day were not built like the homes are today. While it might be difficult for us to walk on our rooftop, for David and his palace, it was not at all. Chuck Swindoll explains the typical structure of that particular day. He says, Eastern monarchs frequently built their bedchambers on the second story of the palace and had a door that would open onto what you and I would call a patio roof. Often, it was elegantly furnished, a place to sit with his family or his men in council. 
situated above the public demands and away from the streets, it was secreted so that people could not spot him. And that's where David found himself that unforgettable night. Yeah, so Swindoll's comment here then, his insight, is helpful to understand how David could be walking along the rooftop when all this began to happen. And then notice then as David has taken the, the finale of his afternoon rest, he gets up, walks into the patio, and undoubtedly hears, certainly sees, a woman bathing. Now I want to be critical of Bathsheba and her situation she has in just a moment. I'm going to come back to that, but I don't want to run into that too quickly because we need to still cover a few things here that already happened with David. So again, remember this for the record. We have established that David is at home. Remember, David is at home while the rest of the men, who are probably 20 years and older, are at war. For us, we had let somebody go in the military at age 18. For them, it was 20 years and older. They're all battling the Ammonites. We know who they are. And remember, typically, David, if you know anything about him, yeah, we know he's a man for God's own heart, but the other way of describing David typically is that he was a warring king, which meant he'd been to battles quite often. His son Solomon never went to battle. But David was a warring king. He was not afraid to use the sword. He had done so valiantly upon many occasions. But in this moment, David is not where he would typically be in battle at war. He is at home. He is at home, not at war with his men. What does all that mean? What am I trying to point out here? It is this. That David is placing himself in a potentially compromising position. He is not with his men. He is not in battle as would be customary for him. He is not engaging the Ammonites. That is strange for David to not be in battle. He was a warring king. Again, he was not afraid to use a sword. So he is at home, which means he is idle. What does that observation mean? It means this. Had he been where he belonged, with his troops by their side, engaging the Ammonites, there would not have been the Bathsheba episode. They're thinking, dude, that's stating the obvious. Well, yeah, it is stating the obvious. Had he been where he was supposed to be, rather than where he was, there would not have been the Bathsheba episode. And again, stating the obvious, I know, but it leads us to our first application, which is this. That Satan often finds some mischief for idle hands to do. Now think about that. That's our enemy. He often finds some mischief for people who are idle and have spare time. I mean, whatever the cause, good or bad, that kept David in Jerusalem, I mean, that's true. I mean, he was alone. He was at home. He was taking a nap, supposedly. He got up. He has some spare time. He has some leisure time. He was idle. And in that moment of being idle, Satan finds some mischief for idle hands to do. One of the scholars I was reading last week preparing for this morning maybe said that best when he said, our greatest battles do not usually come when we're working hard 
they come when we have some leisure, when we've got time on our hands, when we're bored. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, think about when you are the most tempted. Is it when you are busy, hard at work, doing something constructive? Or is it when you're idle and have all this spare time? Now, I'm always careful not to give too much credit or power to Satan. But he, I know he's no fool. I mean, Satan knows our weaknesses. And he knows that our weaknesses can be exploited during the time we have of luxury or, 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 or spare time when we're idle. I mean, Satan knows what we can be tempted with, and he presents those things seemingly at the right time when we can't entertain it, when we seemingly have nothing to do, when we have the idle spare time, it seems to present itself upon multiple occasions. Each time this year, we know many parents are leaving their children at home. I mean, it's summer. School's out. I'm not getting to enjoy it. I'm still working at the school. But a lot of these kids are out from school. All right? Actually, I'm kind of glad they're out of school because I ain't got to take them back and forth no more for a while driving that bus. But they're home. A lot of them are bored. You know what children say the first week they're home from school? I'm bored. Really? Let me find you something to do. But that's what happens. They're out of school. And I get it. I mean, I've been a parent. I know that when children get old enough to the point where they can take care of themselves, they can provide the food and water, they can use the microwave, let them stay home. It's cheaper. And just let them be there. I ain't got to worry about them so much. But shouldn't we be? Because they're idle. They have that leisure time. It offers so much leisure time that Satan can capitalize upon the moment. Out of time equals mischief equals Satan's opportunity to present a temptation. And before we know it, the temptation becomes too strong and it's acted upon. An amazing thing occurred the last week of school. We had summer school in Princeton throughout the month of June. The last day of driving the kids back and forth was an amazing day for a lot of reasons, but one point I'm going to explain to you. Because as I was taking the kids to school that particular morning, I had one of the girls come from the very back, and she said, Driver, the boy vaping in the back of the bus today. I said, What? A, a boy vaping in the back of the bus? I said, Oh, okay, well, thanks for letting me know. Well, the air conditioning was not on that day. It was a little cooler. And I walked back there to make sure everybody was off the bus. And I could smell it immediately in the back of the bus. I mean, it has a distinct aroma, right? So I could tell it pretty quickly. And with the boy that she described, I'm thinking, there's no way it can be this kid. There's no way. Because he gets off at the intermediate school, which is second, third, and fourth grade. Or third, fourth, and fifth grade. So I'm thinking there's no way it can be him. He's a nine-year-old third grader. There's no way it can be him. So all day long I'm thinking about this until noon when it's time to take them back home because they're only in school during the morning hours. So I go back to the school in the afternoon, ready to take the kids home. His name is Trey. Trey gets back on the bus, 
And he comes back on the bus, and I said, Trey, stand beside me just a moment. Let the other kids pass back to their seat. I want to talk to you for just a minute. And he stands there, and he looks, and I said, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to be perfectly honest with me. Because there's a camera back there watching everything that happens on this bus. And the question I'm about to ask you, think about the fact that I've already watched the film. And it kind of gives me a very serious look. I'm being very serious with him. I said, Trey, were you back there vaping today? By the way, I had not looked at the video. I said, were you back there vaping today on the way to school? Remember, I looked at that film. He said, yeah. I said, Trey, you're in third grade, dude, a nine-year-old. What you do on your own time is your own business. I said, but that would not happen on this bus. Do you understand me? He said, yes. I said, go back to your seat then. But there's a situation. Here's what I'm describing. Kids have so much idle spare time. And at nine years old in third grade, they're already entertaining vaping? That's amazing to recognize that's happening. It just presents itself how Satan can capitalize on any particular moment, any situation, and get somebody to do something that they know they shouldn't be doing. It happened with David. It happens with adults. It's not just kids at home during the summertime. It happens to all kinds of adults who find themselves idle. Listen, it occurs to adults, professionals, businessmen and women, who may be on a sales call or a conference out of town, who suddenly find themselves with idle time and then begin to entertain the nightlife. Satan grabs that moment. The temptation becomes too much. You know, we admire professional athletes for their ability. I mean, they do things that just boggle the mind at times. They got a gift, a talent, an ability that we honestly, a lot of us wish we had. We don't have such a gift and a talent, so we admire theirs to the point where we can put them on a pedestal. But how many times have you heard about a professional athlete having idle time that eventually get themselves into predicament, into trouble. It happens more often than we probably hear about. But think of some of them you know, like Tiger Woods, Magic Johnson, Lance Armstrong, Pete Rose, O.J. Simpson, Daryl Strawberry, Tanya Harding. Some of you are thinking, who's Tanya Harding? Look it up. Dwight Good and Mike Tyson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They had the idle time. Satan took the opportunity. He capitalized on the fact that they had some idle time. Present temptation became too strong. So here's the thing we have to acknowledge, whether it's you, me, Tiger, Mike Tyson, Pete Rose, no matter who it is. Idleness isn't just an absence of activity. Idleness is also activity to no purpose. And Satan knows this. He knows you've got that moment when there's nothing else that seems to go along. And he probably knows this a lot of times just you by yourself or your kids by themselves or an adult by themselves. And he presents something during that idle time that becomes too much. He plants that thought, waters that seed, however it grows. And we fall to the invitation like it is with David. 
We all had that rooftop experience. So what is the remedy? Okay, here's the situation. What is the remedy? Well, it seems to be way too easy. Find something constructive and productive to do. It just seems that easy. Find something to do that will glorify God. Find something else to do. Tell Satan no. You can tell Satan no. I mean, the fact is we all have that occasional idle time in our life. And we do find ourselves with that spare time, and somehow we got to root the temptation. It's just best to remove it any way possible. Billy Graham, for example, great evangelist. Everybody knows Billy Graham. But he purposely, when he would be out of town on business, and Ruth would not be with him, which is on small occasions, Ruth, his wife, traveled with him quite a bit. But when he was having that idle time by himself in the hotel room, he purposely had the TV removed because he did not want to have anything in his life that would just allure him to the sexual attraction you can find so often now on TV. So we just had the TV removed completely from the hotel room. It had been better off for Jimmy Swagger and Jimmy Baker to follow the same action. In the text, David has some spare idle time. So when we think, well, what, what could David have done then? Well, when David had finished his nap, okay, his resting, he could have, should have, found immediately something of the kingdom, of the duty, responsibilities he had as the king to do. Not let his mind and body wander about taking some walk by himself because it got him into trouble. Samuel Johnson says, if you're idle, be not solitary. If you're solitary, be not idle. Had David followed that counsel, he would have saved himself and his family, even his nation, a great deal of heartache. Again, the first point is that Satan often finds some mischief for idle hands to do. But there's more to the story. We're not quite finished with these two verses. So go back to verse 2. We find, again, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. We dissected some of this. Walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw a woman. We know the woman's Bathsheba. Didn't tell us the name yet, but we know it's already her. And he found her very beautiful. So look at how the author now describes Bathsheba. I'm going to be a little critical now. I've been someone to David. Now I'm going to be a little critical of Bathsheba. But look how the author begins to describe this woman. David saw her. We know his actions. And he should have been finding something different to do during the idle time. But notice how the author describes the woman. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was what? Very beautiful. Very beautiful. Other translations say it this way. King James, very beautiful to look upon. New American, very beautiful in appearance. New Living Translation, unusual beauty. Okay, you're saying, wait, dude, you're, you're making way too much of her beauty. Well, not really. I'm bringing it to your attention because the Bible never pads the record. When it says a woman is beautiful, she's fabulous, all right? That was the case, if you will, with these women I'm about to show you. Sarai, Rachel, Tamar. When Sarai, Abraham's wife, she's a woman beautiful in appearance. Rachel, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Tamar, David's son, had a beautiful sister. 
Notice how the word used beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Never was she described as very beautiful. But notice how we compare that to this text. It adds an adjective, very beautiful. Which means then that Bathsheba, listen to me, is drop dead gorgeous. Okay? And she's just that good. That's Bathsheba. One commentary said Bathsheba's a knockout, physically attractive beyond description. Rarely will scripture include the word very. And when it does, rest assured, it is not exaggeration. So that's Bathsheba. That's how she's being described, okay? Now, mixed with her description, very beautiful, drop dead gorgeous, but the time frame. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon. Here's the question. What or why is she choosing to bathe at this particular moment, day and time and hour? Why is she taking this moment to make and take a bath? I mean, verse 2, if you read it like I do, it suggests it's still daylight. It isn't like David has to get his night vision goggles on to see what's happening. He can look out and he clearly sees. I mean, yeah, his actions will prove to be wrong. But what about Bathsheba? Did she compromise herself at this particular moment? I mean, is, is Bathsheba also, David put himself in a potentially compromising position, but has Bathsheba also put herself in a potentially compromising position? Raymond Brown, in his work, A Study of 2 Samuel, says this. When we read this terrible story, we instinctively think of the offense as David's sin. But this attractive woman cannot be entirely excused. Bathsheba was careless and foolish, lacking in the usual Hebrew modesty, or she certainly would not have washed in a place where she knew she could be overlooked. From her rooftop, she would often have looked out to the royal palace and must have known that she could be seen. You know, Brown may bring up an interesting point, but whether you do or do not agree with Brown's assessment of what's happened with Bathsheba, it points to the application which we're about to make. That regardless of Brown's statement, whether you agree or don't agree critically with Bathsheba, like maybe he is, it presents an underlying truth that we must all acknowledge. And so second application, which is this. It is not merely enough to avoid sin ourselves. We must be also not a stumbling block for others. It's not enough just to simply avoid sin ourselves, but must not be a stumbling block for others. Now again, listen to me. I'm not in any way defending David of his actions. David did wrong, absolutely. But I'm also observing what Paul has written in Romans chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. When he says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one, an on one another way any longer, but rather decide never to be a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So Paul aptly states that we must consider all the time our actions, our behavior, the way we dress, and their conduct. I mean, again, no doubt, had David been at war, at battle with his men, he would not have seen Bathsheba that particular afternoon. No doubt. 
But is it also true that if Bathsheba had been serious about her own actions, that maybe she wouldn't have allowed the temptation to be put in front of David that Satan to use? And maybe you don't agree completely. But I see throughout the text in the very beginning at least some sense of responsibility for Bathsheba. I mean, think of it this way. If David had been at war, if he had been at battle, where he's supposed to have been, and Bathsheba still does what she's doing, couldn't someone of else have seen and fallen through that same temptation to take it her as well? I mean, wouldn't David, couldn't have been somebody else because she's in the middle of the afternoon bathing? That thought, again, points to the fact that it's not merely enough to avoid sin ourselves. We must not be a stumbling block for others. I mean, in our lives, how often do you see men and women just wearing seductive clothing? It happens way often. I mean, I actually see some girls getting on the bus. Not trying to be critical of girls and women, but I see some getting on the bus. I'm thinking, there's no way my daughter could wear that to school. We people make rude, offensive remarks and gestures. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, I hear what you're saying. I see it all the time myself, but then people are not Christians. Oh, really? How do we know they're not? I mean, you fully take Paul's command into account. We should never be a stumbling block for others. We have to recognize that Satan can capitalize on the moment and make an alluring temptation. For something we didn't even mean to happen, it can happen. That means we must be modest. We must be careful. We must be controlled, not leaving a hint of unlearning. Must another be tempted. We must work in cooperation with the right Christian behavior because we are Christian, because we are followers of Christ. I mean, in this particular account, I believe that David and Bathsheba were both at fault to some degree. I mean, their actions were very questionable at least on this particular occasion in the first two verses. But yeah, the two, David is certainly the aggressor. There's no doubt about it. He looked, he got up, he looked, and he should have looked away. He should have found something else to occupy his time. He should certainly not have stopped and looked and stared and lusted and sought her out because he ultimately lost control of his passion. And Satan, Satan sees that very moment. It's David's rooftop experience. What we're suggesting today and recognizing that David and Bathsheba is that we all have some sort of rooftop experience in our own life. And we can look at David and his actions and say, that is completely ugly. But here's the point. Isn't all sin really ugly? It is. So today, then, we open the Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we take some extra time to learn about an account that we're familiar with. Commentaries, books, sermons of all numerable about what happens in these verses. We've heard it before. And we've only really covered a couple of verses. But we're quickly reminded of the underlying theme that sin always bears consequences. That Satan is always at work looking for his next victim to devour, as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us. 
He's planning, he's deceiving, he's manipulating, he's alluring, and he's tempting his next victim, which could be you and me right now. The point is, don't fall victim to Satan and his tactics. Don't let that next victim be you. we got so much more to cover with David. We're out of time for today. But don't fall victim to the Satan's tactics. Prepare yourself. If you have idle time, find something to do and find something constructive to do to bring glory to God. If you find yourself extra time, maybe God provide that time for you for an intentional purpose of doing something else for his glory. So find what it is and do it. Father, Lord, we thank you for today, Lord, for all your blessings, for this message, for how it can begin to speak to us. How we can recognize, Lord, this is an Old Testament account written many years ago. has been preached and preached and preached, Lord, and written about on multiple occasions. We still find today, Lord, an application for all of us. And I pray, Lord, then as a congregation, as a church, the body of believers together, that if we have idle time, we will remove ourselves from that temptation. Let us find the extra time that you provide for us, Lord, as a blessing and to use it for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for how that message speaks to us today, how that text reveals that truth to us. Thank you, Lord, for all your blessings. The best, of course, we know is Jesus, your son. In his name we pray. Amen.